was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, two-time Emmy Award winner Sherman Yellen. He won those awards for writing the TV series The Addams Chronicles and the pioneering movie about AIDS on Early Frost. On Broadway, he wrote the Tony-nominated book for The Rothschilds and collaborated again with Sheldon Harnick on Rex. He also contributed to the hit O oh Calcutta and his play Strangers had a Broadway debut of its own. His subsequent musicals and plays include Josephine Tonight, Lucky in the Rain, Budapest, and December Fools. He is also the author of Spotless Memories of a New York Childhood and the Horror of Minsk, and is currently a political commentator for the Huffington Post. So, without further ado, the legendary Sherman Yellen. So, I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in writing and in theater. Well, I was uh, an art major at the High School of Music and Art here in New York. That later became LaGuardia High School. And I was an art major. And I started writing a little bit, and then I realized that my talents as a as an artist were were limited. They were good, but they never seemed to grow. I didn't feel the progression that I like to feel when I'm working on a project. Yeah. And whereas with my writing, I felt that, that with each new piece that I was writing, there was an improvement over I had what I had done the last time. So I became more and more interested in writing. I went on to Bard College, where my teacher and mentor and tutor and friend was a fellow named William Humphrey, who wrote a book called Home from the Hill. He was a very populous Southern novelist. And he gave me a lot of encouragement in my writing, and I won a couple of prizes. And, and then when I left, I had a roommate named Peter Stone, who be, later became a Oh, a yes. popular musical playwright, and he wrote Charade. Anyway, Peter read some, a short story that I had written about the Civil War, and he said, hey, that would make a terrific television drama. And there was a play called Studio One years ago, which was very open and accepting of, of new work. And we submitted it. We wrote it up as a uh, TV drama. We submitted it, and they did it. And then I, uh, Peter went off to Hollywood. I remained here in New York. I wrote a, uh, a play that was uh, given an award by Hallmark, um, the Hallmark Hall of Fame. I don't know if they're still on. but uh, And then I started writing for them. I did uh, a play about Friedrich Handel and the recreation of the Messiah. And... Uh, called Cry of Angels, then I did uh, another one for them, I forgot what it was, oh, A Beauty and the Beast with oh, George yes. Scott, with George Scott, and uh, then I started from Beauty and the Beast, I, I, I started writing, I, my, my education was in English literature, 
18th century English literature and 19th century. So I was able to do adaptations of Dickens. I did a new Great Expectations. And I did, uh, well, I don't know. I did a lot of the classics for, for NBC. It was a different world, a different kind of television. And uh, then I was asked by PBS, it was just the bicentennial of the American Revolution was coming up, and uh, I was asked to write uh, a, start the series, send up to a pilot on John Adams, and I oh, did that, and that won, that won a, uh, what is it, an Emmy Award, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, that was my first Emmy. And then I just continued to write uh, for theater and for uh, uh, the Rothschilds. Yeah. Uh, uh, did the libretto for that yes, with uh, yeah. with uh, Buck and Harnick and Al Linden was in that. And I'm just trying to think. You um, probably have before you most of my credits, so I don't have to go through it. You, oh, you can yes, ask me yes. about the questions you want to ask. Well, I I'd love to ask. You've written a lot about your childhood in books and on Facebook, but how how do you think that growing up on the Lower East Side affected you artistically through the rest? Well, I didn't grow up on the Lower East Side. I grew up in the Bronx. I don't know how that came to be. Uh, but the uh, it was lower middle class, if that's what you mean. Uh, and my parents grew up in the Lower East Side. And I was very much aware of their background and what and what, uh, what they had overcome. And uh, I have a book called Spotless, yeah. which really will let you know. It's a really good book. I'm saying that to you so you don't uh, think that I'm just promoting something. Oh. But it's about growing up and from, and from a six-year-old on. And uh, I, uh, I really covered most of that in there. I, I, how my parents... I don't know. We had a rather uh, fraught environment. My father was a kind of bipolar. Uh, he was very loving and uh, very contentious and very difficult. And uh, life was theater in the house. So uh, I didn't have to learn about the fundamentals of theater. I was living it. Yeah, yeah. And what were some of the works that you read during this time or saw that inspired you? Well, I think uh, I loved Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, my, yeah. my father, uh, we had a box at uh, every theater going. He had a, a theater agent who allowed him to have this box, and we saw virtually every play. I think Death of a Salesman was very influential on my uh, political views and on my writing and uh I'm trying to think of any other. Oh, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, oh. um, uh, Gypsy as, as a musical, um, West Side Story. I mean, I, I had the good fortune. Well, it's not this good fortune now. It's, I'm 89 years old, about to become 90. But uh, although that's good fortune, too. Yes. Uh, but uh, I saw the originals of most of the great, I saw the original of Oklahoma. Oh, my wife and wow. I attended the opening night of My Fair Lady. Uh, I've, I've seen, you know, uh, I guess the classic theater of the 50s and 60s. Uh, 
and that was my and and the forties. You know, I saw things like Life with Father, and there were a lot a lot of comedies were on Broadway at that time, uh, teenage stuff, and it, th these became sitcoms later. You know, Life uh, Life with Judy. I forgot what they were called, but they were all kind of uh, good natured family stuff, and uh, it wasn't my cup of tea even as a kid. But uh, I, I preferred uh, heavier drama. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it sparked me more. And how so. did how did people around you react to your decision to become a writer? Uh, I think my father, who had a woolen factory, would have preferred that I went into the business with him. But he saw I was hopeless. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to be a writer or nothing else. And so they reacted with kindness and with support. Yeah. And so I, I can only say that I was very, one of the fortunate few. Um, and I was lucky because I was, went into the entertainment business when it was possible for someone like me at the age of, say, 20 to sell a script to Studio One. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that happens anymore. Um, it happens if you go to Harvard uh, and they pick you out of the class to be on Saturday Night Live, but oh, um, it doesn't happen very much. But there was an, a much more open world. It was live TV, and I got to tell you, the adventures in live TV were amazing. Mm -hmm. I can give you a, a, an anecdote, a story, if you'd like. Oh yes, um, yes. Uh, day before battle was about two Yankee soldiers who were guarding a Confederate uh, and a soldier. And it was the night before a big battle, probably Gettysburg was being, was going to about to happen. And one of the soldiers was determined to get out and be with the girl he had been having a romance with. And this was an actor, long dead, Gerald Saracini. And uh, he uh, ultimately, the conclusion was that he, he set the trap for the Confederate soldier to try to escape, and he shoots him. Oh. And he had, he had a moral awareness at the end of what he has done, and he starts sobbing. Now, it, it, it closes, you know, on, on his awareness and on his sobbing. That was in rehearsal. But in live television, the other actor named Jack Lord, who later became well-known for Hawaii Five-O, decided that that was too good an opportunity to pass up. And so he screwed up the entire plot. And instead of letting the guy who kills the, the Confederate have the remorse, he got in front of the camera and started sobbing, which made no sense whatsoever, but it did give you a terrific close-up of Jack Lord. Which, uh, and I, I thought that it killed the whole show, but apparently it was very successful. So, uh, but Peter and I were furious. We were enraged, but there was nothing we could do about it. That was live television. Yeah. What was your collaboration like with Peter Stone, who, of course, was another great book writer, as you were saying? Uh, well, we didn't, uh, we wrote a television series about the supernatural. Um, 
I had worked for a place called, I had to earn my living as well as write. Uh, it wasn't sufficient. The prices in those days for scripts was very small compared to today. And so I had, I had a part-time job working for a parapsychology foundation, which dealt with uh, spiritualism and stuff like that. I was not a believer, but I could edit their stuff. And that's what I did. And uh, Peter and I had a deal going on this. And financially, it proved to be all for Peter and very little for me, even though I had come with the idea and written the original draft. Mm -hmm. And so we had a falling out. And 40 years later, we made up. But it took that long. Yeah, and I would be curious to know what made you decide to sort of switch from writing in terms of novels and books to writing script? Uh, the the yeah. fact that I, I was married and uh, I was suddenly taken up by NBC who had me, kept sending me to London oh. time and again. And then I had a, uh, a grant from a, a foundation to uh, study Shakespeare in London. And so I, 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 I found that it, w it was a, a more uh, welcoming uh, material than novel writing. Although my late years, I have been doing nothing but writing prose. Mm -hmm. I have two books in the hopper that I'm finishing up. One is called Gus and Us, Oh. about me and my beloved schnauzer, uh, a story, uh, really, it's, it's, it's a story of misadventures, both human and animal, and uh, the other is a book called Absent Friends, which uh, covers my observations about people I was very close to in life, like Richard Rogers, oh. and uh, I, I, I don't mean to be patronizing, but I assume because you love the theater, you know who people like Richard Rogers were. Oh, yes, yes. I, I... Uh, well, there was a, a long study of Richard Rogers, and I worked with a guy named Wally Harper, who was Barbara Cook's accompanist. And we wrote two shows, one of which is called Josephine Tonight, and it's a four-character, all African-American musical about Josephine Baker. And uh, we wrote a couple of other shows that um, one was called uh, This Fair World, but at the, under the title of Say Yes, it appeared in good speed. And uh, uh, the Josephine Baker show was with Lillian, uh, Lillian, Lillian White, and it got brilliant reviews in Chicago, but it was, never came into New York. So, uh, so that it, that's it. More or less, and I've, I've written a book of plays, which is available, uh, three plays, and uh, I've collaborated with, if, if, if any collaboration uh, is of consequence, it's with Sheldon Harnick, yes, where not only did we do the Rothschilds together, but we did a play called Rex, a musical, which was not a great success, and we spent 40 years revising it, and now I think it's a masterpiece, oh. but it's hard getting somebody to put it on. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a rough it, 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 it's a rough game. Yeah, it's a, yeah. because of the amount of money that's involved in putting on the show. Uh, that's why, I, in a sense, I returned to what I started out doing. I started out writing short stories, 
and I ended up uh, writing these profiles. And uh, this is going to sound complicated to you, possibly, possibly not. But after I wrote uh, Spotless, which was about my childhood, to young manhood, I uh, everybody kept asking me to write about my my life in the theater and elsewhere, and I really didn't want to do that. So I decided to do, in absent friends, studies of people who mattered in my life. And I was fortunate because I knew a lot of, of, of infamous and famous people. I mean, I spent a day with Marilyn Monroe. I knew Cary Grant. I, uh, I, I, didn't, I never sought these people out. Quite honestly, I didn't. I'm not a star seeker. Uh, they just came into my life in one way or another. Yeah. But I just I suddenly realized after doing a first draft of this book, which is pretty lengthy and which really describes other people and their lives, that it was my autobiography. Because what I say about them and how I observe them reflect who I am. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. It does. And I would love to ask if you'd want to tell one of the anecdotes I know is in that book, which is about Harold Pinter and your meeting him. Oh, Harold Pinter. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I was doing, I think, Great Expectations in, in uh, Shepherd and Studios. And I had, a I had a great friend named John Berry, who was the designer for the Rothschilds. And he uh, said, if you ever... Uh, meet Harold Pinter, or ever see him, go over and say hello, because uh, he's, I've done all the Pinter plays, he did, he designed them, and designed them magnificently, gave them more atmosphere than you could believe, and he said, you'll, you'll like each other, two nice, literate Jewish boys, so I'm in Shepherd and Studios in the, uh, um, you know, the lunchroom there, and who do I see standing by the bar but Harold Pinter. Oh. So I say, what the hell, I'll go over and introduce myself. So I walk over and say, Mr. Pinter, I'm Sherman Yellen. We have a mutual friend in John Berry, and he said that if I ever came upon you, I should introduce myself. And he said, oh, and he turned away. Oh. And then I think I said something, I think I said something else. And he said, uh, sorry, and turned away. Oh. And uh, I attributed that. Well, uh, you've got to understand that at that time, everyone smoked and yes. everyone coughed. And coughing, I really think it isn't uh, soccer, but coughing is the national sport of, of <laughs> England. Oh. And uh, I, everyone was coughing in my face that day. And, I was feeling very depressed because I had been, I spent, I had spent a long time among very famous people and had never been snubbed, you know, oh, yeah. it was a kind of humiliating snub as if I was seeking his autograph and all I was doing was saying hello to a friend. Yeah. And uh, I came back and I was on a plane and I started spitting blood and I got off the plane in California, went to a doctor, he said I had TB. And I kept, I picked up a rare uh, kind of British uh, strain of it, 
and uh, it took me a year and a half to uh, get over it. I went to Arizona, where a cousin of mine was a famous um, doctor for, for this illness, and we used to climb uh, the mesas, where you know the Zuni mesas. And one day I spit up blood, and I said, "This is the end of it. I will not let Harold Pinter kill me." <laughs> and I, and that day forward, the next thing we took an X-ray, I was cured. Oh, well. but of course it might have been, uh, Charles. It really might have been some of the newer drugs that I was taking. Oh, I, I attributed it to the uh, the pre-Columbian uh, mesas and the uh, that, I, that we were climbing, and and I can attribute the disease to Harold Prince's rejection. <laughs> but the truth is, I got sick and I got better. <laughs> but I like to I make a story out of it. In yeah. uh, in attributing it to Harold Harold Pinter, his snobbery, and you see, there's a caste system, even in writing, and he didn't know I was a playwright. He thought that I was just a lowly television writer, oh. and that was certainly something to sneer at, as opposed to uh, a guy who uh, made his fortune and his name on the West End. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to know how your sort of style and unique craft in writing developed during your early years of... Well, I tell you, I was an asthmatic child. I was a great reader from... I was reading at three years old. Uh, my mother, who had been an immigrant, was a great reader also. And she and I would read together. And I think we were learning together. And uh, we read through all of Dickens. Uh, I uh, developed a love for language. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the strange, the wonderfulness of language and how you could use words to express all kinds of feelings. Yeah. And uh, for a young kid, uh, who had been pretty much at odds with my father, who was a, a difficult man. Having all these words, having to cover my feelings, I suddenly, uh, I think I became a writer out of necessity, that I needed language, that I could not internalize all the feelings that I had. Yeah. Well, I would love to ask about an early TV project that you did that you mentioned, which was A Cry of Angels with Hermione Gingold and Maureen O'Hara. Yes. Well, uh, it was uh, mostly an opportunity to describe the difficulties that Handel, uh, the, the uh, composer, had in surviving in London. He had made an enemy of uh, the Prince of Wales, who was a wretched human being. And there was a wo woman named uh, Susanna Sibber, who was considered a lost lady because she had had some affairs. And, but she had a beautiful voice. And uh, Hermione Gingle played a princess. And uh, Maureen O'Hara sang. And she did have a very good voice. Uh, I was not a big fan of Miss O'Hara. Oh, not. I was when I first met her because when I was a kid, I admired her. Uh, I admired the 
her beauty. And oh. uh, I, I would watch all these pirate movies, the Black Pirate and all kinds of uh, stuff that she was in. And it was very funny because Walter Slezak, who played Handel, was usually the villain in them. And oh. Errol Flynn was the hero. And she was the heroine. And she was a quite a, a, a much more gifted actress than uh, being given credit for. But she made a remark to me. Uh, at that time, I was born with a very small little nose, and I guess I hate that expression. I didn't look Jewish, but I didn't look Jewish. Oh. And uh, she turned to me one day and uh, said to me, oh, Sherman, she said, can you bear Hermione Gingold? I said, what's wrong with her? She said, oh, she's so Jewish, the way she pronounces everything. Um, and I said, uh, uh, Maureen, I'm Jewish too, and I find that quite offensive. So she yeah. never spoke to me again. And uh, that was the end of that one. Yeah, yeah. And do you generally prefer writing lighter or darker material? Here, let me put it this way. I deal with my last play, and the one I think is the best thing I've ever written, yet to be produced, is called Budapest. Oh, and yeah. it's about it's about a woman who survived not only the Nazi concentration camps, but because she happened to be a Jewish aristocrat was is put into a gulag by the Russians who liberate the camp. She's a woman I knew. This is based on a real woman. And believe it or not, it's a dark subject that is comedic. I can't write anything that doesn't have comedic overtones. I like it. Sometimes we would call the comedy irony, but uh, I, hate, I hate anything that's dreary and that's... Uh, uh, you know that, that lectures you, or uh, yeah, I like I, I like I like subtlety, and I like humor, and I like to use humor where it's appropriate. Even though I can I can um, many of the subjects that I write about are uh, are tragic in a way. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a play about Sinclair Lewis, who was the writer of Main Street, a very famous writer in the twenties, uh, won the. Uh, the Nobel Prize, but he was an alcoholic. Every alcoholic is boring and tragic at the same time. Oh. That was the most difficult thing for me to write uh, about uh, an alcoholic. I found uh, I found it uh, very very hard to do a scene where I had patience with the character. Yeah. And um, although I have worked with. Uh, with a collaborator who was an alcoholic. And uh, I'll show you, the, I'll read the opening lines to the piece on this particular man. Oh. Oh. He was a drunk. He was a liar. He was an angel. And for the last decade of his life, I loved him as a trusted friend and as a collaborator in the making of a musical. Oh. And, uh, so uh, I've had my experience of, of alcoholics, and of course in this theater there are a lot of people who drink. I don't. Uh, I don't think I've had a drink in 30 years. I used to be a terrible cigarette smoker, 
but I gave that up when I uh, had TB. I yeah. never smoked afterwards. No. So what else do you want to know about oh. me? Well, you can I'm... be personal. You can be rude. I don't give a damn. <laughs> I'm, I'm too old to worry about any anything. Okay, okay. But I, I did want to say just I really loved that play, Budapest, that was in your collection of plays, and I think it's one of the most moving and one of the best that I've ever read. I thank you for that. Oh. I, you know, it's immodest, but I agree with you. <laughs> oh. And uh, it's, uh, but they, that, that's the answer to the question. Uh, there's a lot of comedy in it, but yeah. the subject is a tragic one. You know, the way the world, uh, it, it, it's curious. It was a version of Camille, but instead of tuberculosis doing her in, it was world history that did her in. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I, have a, I have a producer who has expressed an interest in it. Oh. But of course, the raising of money, 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 money <laughs> is always uh, at the bottom of these things. And also finding the right actress uh, yeah. in that age group, you know, 40 to 50, uh, who isn't a movie star or who has been a movie star. Yeah. I mean, if you want to do a reading of a play in New York and get people to come see it, no matter what your own personal reputation might be as a writer, you have to have some star personality yeah. doing yeah. the reading for you because uh, that's the only way you can get people to come and see it. And um, so uh, I'm hopeful that we will get some somebody really good who will do the part of Minna. Yeah. And, uh, although all uh, all part all the parts are good, I think that you know. Yes. Her, her sister-in-law, Clotty, is every bit as good a part. Yeah. But uh, I keep going. I'm enjoying this. Oh, me too. Me too. So I'd love to know if there's a character in one of your plays or musicals that you feel that you've put the most of yourself into? Uh, I would say in the musical Lucky in the Rain, Henderson Booth, the young journalist who goes to Paris in the 1920s. Now, believe me, I wasn't born until the 30s. <laughs> but he's carefree and open to life. And I have always been available to life. Yeah. Uh, and I think he represents some of my attitude, you know, of, of taking things as they come along and trying to enjoy my life. Yeah. I believe in pleasure, not in hedonism, not, not in uh, overindulgence, but I take tremendous pleasure. Well, one thing you may not know, uh, you will once Gus and Buzz is, is, is uh, published, is I am an animal maniac. I love dogs. I love cats. I love all animals. I am going through a deprived period. My son just came over with his two dogs, one of whom used to be mine. But I had a terrible accident. And oh. I, fell, I fell and I smashed my elbow and my arm had to be reconstructed and they had to put in an artificial elbow. And he was afraid that the dog would pull me and I would have another accident. So he's taken the dog and the dog visits me. But this is the first time in my adult life 
that I have not had animals. And uh, well, my wife is crazy about them too, so, uh, and she feels a little deprived. We both do. Yeah. Our problem is that we're getting, a, it's chronologically, look, I'm going to be 90 on my next birthday. Yeah. And what do I do if I adopt a young pet? Uh, is it fair? Who's going to take it? You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a consideration. Although I'll tell you, I think I'm going to go to the shelter and get an older cat oh. and let it live out its life with me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would well, love to talk a little more about Lucky in the Rain since you brought that up. And how did the sort of idea for this first come to you? Well, I had read a book by a journalist at the time. And Paris in the 19, like 1927, uh, was a madhouse. It was wonderful to be young. You could live on practically nothing. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, also a time when there were people like Josephine Baker and Isadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein. I have the only tap dancing to Gertrude Stein and the history of Gertrude <laughs> Stein. Uh, she does a, a great tap dance in it. And uh, it was... I must say that this I've never felt that I've been robbed, but this this was beautifully received at good speed. Uh, the Hartford critics, the Boston critics loved it and everything. And then a young guy who was a new critic for the New York Times came down. He sniffed at it and didn't really like it. Oh. And the person who was supposed to produce it figured, well, hell, if we're not going to get a great review in the Times, I'm not going to produce it. And so it ended there. But I had the joy of seeing it on stage, and it was beautifully costumed. It had wonderful music in it by uh, Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Field. And I had the, their estates had given me the rights. And uh, it's a great show, but uh, it, I doubt if it will be seen again. Whereas Josephine Tonight, which had started out with 12 characters, ends up with four. Uh, everybody impersonates everybody else except Josephine. Stays, you know, there's one character who stays herself, and everybody else is uh, a series of characters. And the music is wonderful. Wally Harper wrote a score that is so magnificent. It's in the great, really, it's in the great tradition of musical scores. Yeah. Uh, it's melodic and yet full, and uh, it's a brilliant score. And I must say, I did the lyrics. And they're yes. pretty clever. Yes. So, you see, modesty is not my abiding sin. <laughs> and I'd love to ask about working with existing music to put together Lucky in the Rain and what that was like to be. Oh, with Wally? Oh, oh, with, oh. With, uh, uh, well, I just did it. Uh, actually, I didn't have anything. I had the songs of Jimmy McHugh, like uh, Sunny Side of the Street, stuff like that. And they were uh, licensed to me. And so I could find them and put them in, uh, seed them within the plot. And of course, mm -hmm. I tried to do it in a way where they were unexpected. You know, uh, it's hard to say without reading the script, but you would see that it doesn't come up where you think it's going to come up. Uh, yeah. and, that's, and that's one of the things that I can do very well. I, I like to surprise the audience. Uh, I think that's half the fun. Yeah, yeah. 
So I'd love to ask about an early Broadway show you did, which was Oh, Calcutta, which you contributed to. Yes. Uh, I contributed a sketch which was not uh, one of great nudity, and uh, it was about... I would Let me say it this way. I wouldn't have written it today because I think it makes light of an attempted rape. And I am much more conscious. Look, I have, I have three granddaughters, and I am very, very, very fearful of the world that they live in. Yeah. And so, but, but this is about a man who invites a woman to his, it's Victoria. Imagine overstuffed sofas and everything. And he invites this woman who is famous for her virtue to his uh, apartment and she is a little reluctant, but he puts it, he tells her to sit down and of course suddenly this chair traps her inside it. And of course the whole point of it is that he is an absolute novice at seduction. And she has been seduced many, 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 many times. Uh, uh, it was, uh, I mean, light, light. It was, and it was very faux British. For she, as she's describing her life, the first time that she encountered uh, such a situation, it was beastly hot in Pune, <laughs> and uh, you can take it from there. Yeah. Very British, very funny. But uh, you see, I'd lived in England for many years, and. Oh. Uh, on scholar on grants and doing work there, and so I was familiar with the vernacular and with Victorian stuff, and I wanted to do a real comedy. But the irony of this, Charles, this is my first time on Broadway or off off Broadway, but the first time in the theater. And the New York Times said that uh, essentially they said that the Calcutta was. A disappointment. It was no good, but there was one wonderful, wonderful sketch in it called "Delicious Indignities." Oh. That was my sketch. Yeah. But we had all taken a vow that we were not allowed to say who wrote what. Oh. Because it, everybody wanted to jump from, uh, you know, from the Beatles to. Uh, there were very famous writers in it. Uh, yeah. Nobody wanted to take responsibility. They were all just wanted to contribute. And the idea was to liberate the theater to nudity and language and situations, yeah. which it didn't really do. I don't think that the theater needed it, quite honestly. Uh, and I'm no prude, believe me, I'm not. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I don't think that uh, that it made a difference. We we thought that that would would open up, but uh, I mean, nudity on stage was being done in um, in other things. The one that. What, what, what was it? What was the musical Diane Keaton was in? Do you remember? Oh, uh, the musical that she was hair. in. Hair, Oh, oh yes, yes. Okay. I, I think there was some some nudity in that, but it, mine was not shocking. It was just funny. It was a, it was I thought hilarious, and here I had to face a glowing review, but without the credit, and I was young enough to want a little credit to start my career. Yeah. And uh, that uh, didn't bother me. Years later, uh, I think I wrote an introduction to it, and I uh, and everybody wanted their credits known, so we, we placed them in the proper order. But it ran for about ten years or more, yeah. and it paid for my kids' schooling and uh, my rent, 
And uh, this thing had taken me about 15 minutes to write. <laughs> Hillard Elkins called me up and said, uh, can you write dirty? I said, what do you mean dirty? He said, I mean, can you write uh, something that's uh, mildly pornographic? I said, well, I, you're speaking to a, a 21-year-old man who has lived in the world, and I guess I can do that. And so it took me 15 minutes or 30 minutes, and I had the whole thing done, and I sent it to him. And uh, that was delicious indignities in O'Calcutta. But O'Calcutta, people were so hypocritical, they came to see it, and they came to see it and to condemn it, but they came to see it. And that's why it made so much money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was funny. My mother had a friend, and this friend of hers had, uh, or I think she was my sister's friend, was notorious for her love affairs. <laughs> and she called my mother up after seeing Oak Calcutta and said, you should be so ashamed of your son that he is involved in such a filthy enterprise. And he was a woman whose life was hardly uh, that of the Virgin Mary. So uh, it, was, it was funny because you saw all kinds of hypocrisy going on. And, uh, but in fact, one of my friends on Facebook is a young woman who appeared in that sketch. And now she's 80 and it's hard to believe. Yeah. I can yeah. give you a warning, Charles. Time doesn't fly. It does more than that. It, it, it's like at the, at the speed of light. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had an accident uh, when I fell down and broke my arm and elbow and smashed my teeth. I had a, a grand time of it. Before then, I walked four miles a day with my dog, and I felt like I was about 35 years old. After that accident, I really fell apart, and I'm taking a lot of PT now, physical therapy, to bring myself back again to where I was. Yeah. And uh, but it's, it's not easy. Um, and I have a very good friend in Sheldon Harnick, who is 86 years old, or 87, and uh, is still a wonderful conversationalist and terrific guy. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I'd love to go back for a moment to your early days in writing for TV and ask about what it was like to write a script for an existing show, as you did a few times, to pitch scripts. Oh, you mean things like uh, 12 O'Clock High or uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E.? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, those, those were bread and butter tasks. And... Uh, I came up with an idea, a setting. Uh, mine was, uh, my, my uh, man from uncle was set in Japan. So I had all these huge, big puppets in it. And uh, it was fun. It was a half hour script. And then what they did was they had a, uh, a story editor who put a, his own sheen over everything so that they all seemed to be the same. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it, it was it not, not as if they were, it, there was any individual sense of Sherman Yellen in them. Uh, yeah. Maybe they were a little wittier, and uh, I, had, I, had fun, I had fun writing them. I was earning a living, and it was important to me. Uh, writing is a really hard life. It's yeah. not easy. 
and uh, you know you go through periods of, of, of feast and famine and um, I was lucky because I was there at the very beginning of live uh, television when people were open to uh, young writers uh, I'm not I'm not so sure I don't know what the situation is like today I left I left about 35 years ago when I was about uh, was I was beginning to be 50 and I said I could see that uh, the interest in my in me and in my work was not there so yeah. then I went on to write a series of small musicals that went to good speed and other places and uh, I enjoyed my life very much I yeah. love working in theater I love the family aspect of it the friendships they don't last much beyond the uh, the only one that has lasted all these years, uh, Rothschild was done in 1970s. We still have a once a year meeting with Hal Linden and uh, the, the other sons from the show. And we get together in a restaurant and talk and exchange stories of our lives. And, uh, and there's a friendship there that has continued. But uh, most cases, uh, that friendship is wonderful during the time you are um, you are together, but uh, it, it dissolves afterwards as everybody goes into their own world. Yeah, yeah. And was was working in theater something that you had in mind when you were working in TV? Always. Oh, it was yeah. always something I wanted. If I had inherited wealth, I would not have gone into TV. I would have stayed with the theater. But uh, the prospects of getting a show on, well, look, Budapest has been out there for about five years or so. I don't know how long ago I wrote it. Uh, and I think it is a show that in another world should have been produced. It should have been on Broadway. But it hasn't been because I haven't yet found a producer with the money who can do it. And there is no such thing as one producer anymore. You have to have 17 of them uh, working on it. And uh, the, one th the one thing that changed enormously, when I went to the theater, you asked me about when I was a little boy and we used to sit in the boxes and I watched all these early plays. It was a New York theater audience. I would say it was half uh, Jewish, well, more than half Jewish, uh, a lot of gay people were, went to theater. Yeah. Uh, a lot of women's groups went to theater. But it was not a tourist industry. The problem with theater today is you get a show like Wicked, which, good or bad, will run forever because it has a tourist attraction. Yeah. It has, you know, young girls like it. And uh, that, that is the problem. It, it depends to a great degree upon an out-of-town audience. That's yeah. why I worry a bit about its revival after the pandemic. What's going to happen? Will the tourists come back? I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'd love to pick back up with the Rothschilds and asking you how that started. How that came. Well, remember I told you I wrote this. Uh, I had won the, the, the Hallmark Award for television drama with that uh, piece on Handel's Messiah. And... Uh, so it gave me a little clout. And then I wrote a play called New Gods for Lovers. 
and uh, it was a Jacobean drama. And uh, the reader at uh, the Theatre Guild had presented it to the Theatre Guild people, and they were interested in doing it. And I was so joyful. And then I discovered that the Theatre Guild was closing. And that was the end of it. So I had this play, and uh, I had an agent. And she submitted the play to Hillard Elkins, who was looking for someone who could write a, a, a script that was set in the past and yet would have meaning and value to a contemporary audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he read my work. And he had been through a lot of writers, established writers. Uh, and none of them could come up with a, uh, a script that Bach and Harnick wanted to do. Remember, Bach and Harnick had just done Fiddler. Yes. And they didn't want to just follow it up with another musical about a Jewish family, even though this one was five sons rather than five daughters. Uh, so uh, I took a chance and I wrote it. I, I think I specced it. I read, I read the book, Fred Morton's book, and I decided that only the first 10 pages were worth dramatizing because it was the rise of the Rothschilds. Yeah. Uh, the poverty and the discrimination that was of interest to an audience. Once people are rich, the rich are rich and rich. And they're <laughs> all they're boring, uh, you know. But once to see them struggle to get out of where they were in that ghetto, that was intriguing to me. Yeah. And so that was the part that I chose to dramatize. And Hilly thought it was very good. And it was sent to Bonnet, Buck and Harnick, who had refused all the other versions of it. And they said they wanted to do it. And so that was the beginning of it. And of course, uh, we worked very hard. And uh, there was a section of it that had Jill Clayburgh. There was romance that in the later version of it, we cut out because we felt that not only did we want it to be a little shorter, but we wanted it to have a, that the romance was really a family romance. We didn't need a, a conventional boy meets girl for this show. And uh, so Rothschild and the Sun, the one with the ampersand, yes. that, that is the new version of it. I'd love to continue asking about the Rothschilds and ask if you'd like to talk about this. I know that that was the show on which Bach and Harnick broke up as a writing yes. team. And but I, I have no scuttlebutt on that. I think they um, had, that things, things run their course. And they yeah. had had many, many, many plays before then. They had Fiorello. I, I, uh, I remember they were, they were, they were a fiddler. Uh, and I think it was time. Both of them wanted to do, I think Jerry wanted to write his own lyrics. Sheldon, I think, wanted to try his hand at music. Uh, I don't, uh, uh, if there are any scandalous stories, I don't know them and I can't pass them on to you. I think that there is a time when people look um, that famous couple who were breaking up after 120 years. What, what, what's their name? The oh. one who was Microsoft? Oh, uh, yes, uh, Bill Gates. And... Bill, Bill Gates and his wife. Yeah. I mean, uh, who knows the real story behind that? <laughs> uh, I'm friendly with both, both uh, with Sheldon, and I was a friend of Jerry's until he died. But uh, I have no particular insight into why they, grew, they broke up. Um <laughs> uh, I can tell you that there were wonderful things in that show. Keen Curtis played the various villains, and he did it brilliantly. 
as did the man who did it at the York. In oh, fact, yes. I would talk with you about the York because I think as the young person, it's something that you could get involved with. Of course, they've been flooded out, and I, I know they're trying to raise money to find a new theater or at least to revive that one. But I have been able to revise shows and put them on there. I did a Rex, Sheldon and I put on again after many, many years, and I had turned it into a kind of Elizabethan musical uh, and changed some of the focus. And it's amazing. Under the pressure of a million dollar production or whatever they were at that time, I think $600,000, it was sometimes difficult to make changes. And sometimes if you had a star like Nicola Williamson, who I abominated and who didn't like me, uh, we, we, uh, it was more than difficult to change things because he just put his foot down. Uh, and people were, were afraid. Uh, we were, it was late in the day to get somebody else. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and you're listening to Sherman Yellen on Backstage Babble. The interview you just heard was conducted in May 2021, and part two, which you're about to hear, was conducted in July 2021. Hope you're enjoying it. Great, great. Well, so I'd love to sort of pick up where we left off last time, which was with the Rothschilds, talking about the Rothschilds. And so what was your collaboration like with Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach on this? It was, I thought, a a really super collaboration. I mean, there were problems along the way. Uh, At first, it seemed that the the show, when it was was trying out in Detroit, remember that marvelous time when shows tried out in other cities before coming to New York. Uh, The critique was that it was more a play with music than a musical. But... uh, then the, uh, the present director was, oh, I guess I can only say that he was fired. And uh, Michael um, became, the, the choreographer became the director. And the pace picked up. And uh, I thought uh, Jerry and Sheldon worked beautifully together, even though this was to be their last show. Uh, and uh, I mean, there's songs like In My Own Lifetime that are just exquisite. They're wonderful songs. And, uh, are, you know, it, it was a much, it was a difficult show because it followed Fiddler. And uh, the world, I think, expected more, more funny Jews. And these were not funny Jews. These were aspirational men and women living in a ghetto trying to get out. And it had a more serious theme. But it did not have... Uh, I suppose some of the delights of Fiddler, uh, which, uh, you know, it, although we had an extraordinary uh, Maya Rothschild in Hal Linden, and uh, subsequently we've only had very good casts in the few revivals we've had. And as a playwright and as a book writer, do you like to have a hand in the casting a lot? Or uh, yeah, I do like to have a big say. Uh, and not because my taste is perfection, but because as a writer, I have an idea, an image in my head of what the character looks like and sounds like. Now, I've often been surprised when the very opposite of that, of that person uh, you know, plays a role and is terrific. 
But generally speaking, I like to I like to be able to make a contribution. I'm not the final say. No book writer ever is. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a combination of of the director, the composer, lyricist, and me. Yeah. And uh, we did all select Hal Linden. Um, I saw him in it's a show called The Education of Hyman Kaplan, and I thought he was just wonderful. And then he uh, he was available, and uh, this was a great opportunity for him because, in the main, he had never had a lead role in a Broadway show, or he was always a substitute for someone. And uh, this was his big opportunity, and he seized it, and this was followed by Barney Miller, and the rest was great success. And who are you usually willing to take suggestions from in your book in terms of other writers, producers, directors, actors? I don't think there is a person that I take directions from. I, I speak with the director, uh, the choreographer. I'll speak with an, a lighting, a, an electrician, uh, who sometimes has a, a very uh, uninvolved, dispassionate view of the show. Uh, as opposed to people who are working on it. We get very close to it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I suppose the director becomes the most important person for me to work with. Because generally speaking, when you are the book writer, two things happen. One, your best scenes are incorporated into a song. And uh, other, uh, other uh stuff is cut out of dialogue. Uh, a musical is about it. It is a musical. But it is theater. It's musical theater. So you need the theatrical element, which is kept together by the book, by the libretto. And what was it like to be returning to the show after so many years to revise it? What brought us back? Uh, more or less, uh, well, there's Arnold Middleman and um, his uh, director, um, and they they had worked on the show in uh, I think Orlando, Florida, or Miami, and they came up north and they asked if we would be open to doing a, 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 a this show in one act with uh, some revisions, and uh, I, I think both Sheldon and I thought that we had a very good show. So there was a moment of doubt, but then, as we discussed it, I realized that everything, everything can be changed, and some things improved. Uh, I mean, my, my problem, if I could call it a problem, is that 40-odd uh, years ago, I worked with Richard Rogers on a show called Rex with Sheldon Harnick. That show was not successful. Sheldon and I worked on it over time turned, it gave it an Elizabethan form, and it is really a superb show, if I must say so myself, but it's very difficult to get somebody to do it today. Yeah. The Rogers and Hammerstein organization is no longer really functioning as it was. It was sold, and uh, in any event, I still hold out hope that yeah. someday that version will be done, and that was 40 years ago or so. So... Uh, I, I, I tend to uh, to rework material. Yeah. I think I think of everything as a draft, and uh, but that's not 
so much with my plays. My plays maybe get uh, less rework than, than the musicals yeah. because uh, I like to place the music in different places and I like to, uh, to strengthen certain characters. For example, in Rex, I realized that what I needed was a much stronger character in Henry's Fool, like in Lear. And our fool becomes a source of wisdom and uh, the only one who could confront him. And it, uh, we, we gave him, a, Sheldon and I gave him an, another song and uh, we worked very hard so that their relationship was strengthened. I think it makes for a much better show. Yeah. But, uh, and that was 40 years. Yeah. I can't say it was 40 years in the making. We didn't spend every day doing it. But we spent time looking at the material again. Yes. Yeah. And so how would you approach differently, differently writing a book as opposed to writing a play? Uh, pretty, much, pretty much the same way. Um, I, it, it, I start first. I, I'm not a great one for the notion of collaborating, writing. You know, I read about all these, these famous musicals where they didn't have a second act on the road, or they, uh, they were changing it all along, uh, and they threw out this kind of uh, material and that. And I try to prepare in advance. Yeah. I write a libretto uh, with the knowledge that I am setting up situations where song will flow naturally from the scene. I don't write the lyrics to the, to, not when I was working with Sheldon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I've, I've only, I worked with Wally Harper, and that's when we tried a musical comedy, This Fair World. And there I understood that, that it was going to be, I was the librettist as well, so and, and the uh, lyricist. There it was going to be uh, a musical comedy in the true sense, so that it needed uh, more setups for songs. Uh, not not necessarily scenes that could be incorporated into songs, and so uh, I, I I did my best to make that a a merry musical. Yeah. But uh, generally speaking, I write a, a, a play, uh, and then I, I submit it to the uh, composer and lyricist, and they will take certain scenes, and we will discuss it after they they've set the music. And uh, they, they, you know, I've, I've, I've had a very good fortune of only working with the very best people. Yeah. And uh, you know, some people don't have that luck, but I've had that luck. But the, the people I work with, sort of, they were good fits. You know, we blended into each other. Yeah. And and how do you feel in general about critics and reviews? Uh. I don't feel very good about it because um, I think the um, the audience tells you something that the critics can't tell you. They're looking at it from a different angle. I remember I'm trying to think of a show that I wrote where uh, oh wrote a show called Strangers, which was about the novelist Sinclair Lewis and his wife, who was the first American journalist woman in Berlin, and. Uh, I got reviews in Boston that would say work of genius. It arrived in New York and the critics said, uh, didn't care for it. 
One did, one didn't. But uh, it didn't give it much of a chance. But I think today, because of the internet, uh, because of word of mouth, that the power of critics has changed. Uh, I mean, I'm glad they're there because they often point out very good things uh, and, and, and sometimes make remarkably smart observations. But uh, I, I'm uh, happier now that there is an internet, that there is more of a, a, a vocal view by people who are writing. Uh, you know, everyone is a critic today, and that's good. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if I could ask you to elaborate on something that you said last time, which was you briefly mentioned that you once spent a day with Marilyn Monroe, and I'd, of course, be curious to know more about that. And because I'm well... I had a friend, uh, Bob Solitaire, whose father uh, was a roommate of Joe DiMaggio, and I think Marilyn was just about to marry Joe. And uh, we were in New York, and he said, you want to meet her? And I said, yes. And uh, of course, why not? And uh, she was uh, she was sitting under a piano, believe it or not, and she asked me to join her there. And I sat down next to her under the piano. And we discussed uh, why the piano, because we both had the same impulse. Uh, you know, we both had difficult parents. And when I would run from my dad, who was in a bad mood, I would escape under a piano, sometimes where he couldn't find me. And she mentioned her mother. And uh, then we started talking about life in general. And we got off that quickly enough and just started talking about uh, you know, the creative process, what we wanted out of She was a grown woman, and I was like a 17-year-old, 18-year-old boy, and she treated me with absolute uh, maturity, you know, as if I was a grown-up. There was no sense that she was talking down to me, and uh, she respected my education and my, my desire to be a writer. She thought that was a wonderful ambition, and Ultimately, she ended up with a writer, not very happily, uh, Arthur Miller, but um, she, was a, she was a nice lady, and she was smarter than one thought, well, you know, from, from the movies. The dumb blonde, she was not. She was a, an intelligent, lively, apparently good-natured woman. And so, going back to some of your writing, was there ever a musical or a play or a movie that you turned down, that you were offered, but decided not to do? Yes. Do you remember, it was before your time, but there was a play about slavery and about the blacks in America called Roots, R-O-O-T-S. And it was the first time that a network had decided to treat the subject of of slavery and black lives seriously. And I got a call. I had won uh, the Emmy Award uh, for, and so I got a call from the producer. I think his name was Walter. I'm not quite sure, a long time ago. And he said, uh, we'd like you to do this, to do Roots. Uh, would you agree to do so? And I said, uh, I don't think so. I said, this is an opportunity for you to hire an African-American writer. 
You don't need another Jewish American writer, of which there are many of us. And I said, really, give this, give this project to someone who has lived it. And uh, the fact is, they gave it to another Jewish American writer, and uh, it was very successful. And but I did not regret turning it down for that reason because I believed in that reason and still do. And for kind of a similar question, are there ideas for plays or movies that you have but haven't actually written yet? No, my only things that I am, I am uh, a gentleman of advanced age. And as you will know, if you've looked me up on Wikipedia, and the putting together of, of, of any show and any, uh, it sometimes takes years. Uh, it's, it, it, movies are hard to sell to get a green light. Um, I have a lot in my trunk, and some of them pretty good. Yeah. But uh, I, think, I think there's more opportunity today with the advent of streaming and cable than there was in my time when there were three networks. And if you didn't sell it to one of those, you didn't sell it. Uh, but my feeling is that I have a lot to say about people and life and that I do so in my book. Yeah. Uh, in the new book that I'm writing, which is called Absent Friends, which concerns some deceased people who were close to me. And uh, there's a large section on Richard Rogers. There's one on Peter Stone, he wrote 1776. Uh, there's one on an early feminist, Lois Gould. Uh, but these are, these are people who are all a part of my, I'd say my midlife life, you know, from 30 to 40, and who were close friends. And uh, this is neither in praise of them or in condemnation of them, but an attempt to be honest about some extraordinarily uh, interesting lives. Yeah. And what have you sort of discovered about these people or even about yourself through writing this book? Well, this is interesting because I wrote a early uh, autobiography about my childhood, which was very well received, thankfully, called Spotless. And uh, it was, uh, I, I, I didn't know if I was ever going to follow it up with my middle years because, uh, you know, writers, they, we live relatively boring lives. I mean, and then I wrote, doesn't. You know, it's not an intriguing sentence. Uh, and the best of us, and I think of this as myself as well, is in our work. I mean, if we are good at what we do, it is the best expression of who we are. So I find that prose writing today, like, say I'm writing about Richard Rogers or Peter Stone, or in praise of Richard Rogers and with some criticism of pretty Peter Stone. Uh, but whatever I say about these people becomes, a sense, an autobiography of myself. When I make a comment, negative or positive, I'm saying something about who I am, what my values are, and what I believe about, what I believe about these people. What I say about them is what I'm saying about myself. Is that, is that too confusing? No, 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 no. No, no.
Yeah. So I consider Absent Friends, which is about, it has about uh, 15 biographies of various people. My autobiography. It's an odd thing, but that's it. Yeah. And do you find that you often use real-life people that you know in your plays? Or? Y yes, yes. Uh, in Budapest, and it's about uh, with a formerly be a beautiful former actress from Austria, and I, I knew such a woman. Uh, now, the details of, the, of her life and her story are completely different, but the one thing was that this was a woman who was born Jewish. She uh, was uh, married to an aristocrat, and so she was put in a concentration camp, and because it was liberated by the uh, Soviets, she, and she was an aristocrat as well, they put her in a gulag. And uh, I thought that was fascinating, and what was her life like afterwards? And that was a speculation that I wrote about, um, you know. And uh, and one of the young men who tried—it's it, about trying to get a story for a film. And one of the young men uh, was based upon a playwright I knew, a young playwright. And once you finish writing an original play like this, how do you sort of begin to get it produced or get it into? Well, I have an agent, yeah. and uh, I would submit it to the agent. But I am uh, really no longer in the game. Uh, I don't say that my life is, is all past history. But what I'm really enjoying is the writing of prose. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, my awards are all for, for uh, television. I mean, I've had... Two and a half Emmys. Uh, the, 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 the one Emmy was for the Adams Chronicles. Uh, the other was for An Early Frost, which was the first major show about AIDS uh, that was done on television. And the half one was for Beauty and the Beast with George Scott. I didn't realize until I was writing something about it that I was nominated for uh, for an award, and I got the Christopher Award, which was something that the Catholic Church gives for the the, the, the best television show of the year, and uh, so uh, the but but uh, so my basically my the recognition I've had it has been as a television scriptwriter, yeah. and uh, that uh, and then I did you know, dozens of things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, uh, yeah, Great Expectations. These are all, all remakes that were done in England. Yeah. And uh, I did those in the 1970s. I had a kind of contract with NBC, which was very nice. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I'm a little protective of Beauty and the Beast because a, a couple of people who were I just looked it up the other day, mentioned the fact that Disney, the Disney version, had taken a great deal from my original version. Oh. In other words, my focus was on the character of Beauty and her development. And 
her feminism and her literacy. And uh, a lot of that apparently appeared in the musical, which I did not see because I, my sons were too old at the time and my grandchildren were too young. So, um, and I definitely want to talk more about an early frost because that was, of course, such an important thing that you worked on. And how did that sort of come about at first? Well, uh, I, I, I'm, it came about because I think they wanted somebody who was uh, seriously, who understood family and uh, who was a good researcher, which I am. I mean, my, my wife and I, as soon as we were given, I was given the assignment, we went to, uh, we traveled, we were living in Los Angeles, we traveled to San Francisco, we went to hospitals, and nobody knew quite what the cause of AIDS was. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, the speculation was then not about, it wasn't to be a clinical piece, but it was to be about the effect of, of what was then a fatal illness on a family and how they responded to it. And uh, not everybody was responding well. There were a lot of people who were thrown out yeah. of their homes. Um, but I wanted to do something that wasn't soapy and was sympathetic to, its, uh, to the character and the theme. And did you ever receive any kind of backlash? Because, of course, there was so much bad opinion about it. Uh, no, no, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. I, 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 I just uh, I didn't. There was, there was uh, you know, uh, the, 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 oh, there was a controversial subject. And, uh, but there was, a, there was a great cast also. Yeah. Remember what actors can do yeah. to a work. I mean, Jenna Rollins and, uh, they were just, just, just marvelous actors. I was thinking about actors the other day because my wife and I were, during the pandemic, we were watching a lot of old television. And, you know, we would see some shows like The Closer or, uh, you know, uh, Law and Order. And they had brilliant actors in them, you know, in small parts. And I felt so bad because I hadn't seen these people in much of anything else. Uh, and I said, what? You know, how much talent there is out there. It's extraordinary. But uh, it's also true of... Uh, of, of writing. There's a good deal of writing talent. Yeah. But I think in the main, is, there is a marvelous amount of acting talent. And uh, not all of it gets appreciated. And I think that part of the talent of being an actor is being able to accept rejection. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the talent of being a writer as well. Uh, I was very fortunate because uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I, when I sold my first television script to uh, what was then called Studio One, I think I was 17 or 18 years old, and uh, my wife was telling me I was 19 that I'm I'm cheating. What's, well, what's, what's your aspiration? I think you want you want something in your own future. Is it as a writer, as an actor? Well, uh, I've always wanted to be a director. Well, that's a good thing to be. That's about as good a thing as you can be. 
uh, I think, of, of all the chosen professions. That's the one that, uh, first of all, you're brought in more or less when the work is semi-completed. You have a great deal of control over performances, and uh, directors get a lot of glory, uh, much more so than than writers do. Yeah. I mean, there are a few, few famous writers, but not not the number of, of directors, for example, in film. But I'm thinking of, 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 of Mike Nichols, you know, idolized for his work as a director. And, of course, uh, the fat guy, you know, I mean, Hitchcock. Oh, yes, uh, yes. I mean, you wouldn't almost know if there was a, a writer in, in his movies because he dominates them so much. And the performances. Um, oh, it's a good choice. Oh, thank you. Joel, keep I'd, it up. I'd love to ask next about um, working on TV. Do you find that there's a big difference in the way you're treated there as opposed to as a writer on Broadway? Or Oh, immense, immense. In television, they don't really want you around. They want your work. They want to comment on your work. And in some instances, they want to rewrite it. Uh, you have much more control in the theater. Uh, you can you can actually shut down a production if they meddle too much with what you're doing. I mean, it's difficult to do, but in the main, there is a respect for the writer in the theater that uh, I never found in television. Um, the uh, the theater does not. Well, this isn't so true anymore. The theater was once a place where original work was valued. And the movies have always been based upon a book or uh, a, 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 a theater piece. Uh, that's how movies started out, buying properties. Um, but, and the theater was the place where you, an original piece of work could go on. Now, I fear uh, it doesn't matter to me because I'm not in the game, but the disnification of Broadway uh, scares me. Uh, I know there have been some very good pieces in it, and I understand, I have not seen it, that The Lion King is brilliant, but I think that there was the director's at hand. She was very good. Um, but I think that the what has happened to the theater in New York, not necessarily in other places where there are repertory companies, it has become a tourist attraction. Yeah. One we need, we need the money, it keeps the theater alive. But uh, when I was a, a young boy and I went to the theater from probably eight or nine years old with my father, he had a ticket in a box, and we always had a box seat in every theater in New York. Oh. And uh, I saw everything, but the, uh, the fact was that there was a New York audience and that was what they depended upon. You opened your show, you got some reviews, there was word of mouth, and people went to the theater. Sometimes it ran for a year, sometimes less. But these extraordinary runs that the theater has today in Disney shows, it's because they're an extension, from my point of view, of theatrical theme parks, I would call them. Yeah. And how have you found that even in writing your plays, you've sort of had to write for a different audience as? No, I don't do that. Oh, I my last plays were written for 
uh, an off-Broadway audience, more or less. That's a different audience. I started out writing for Broadway. And I uh, made a good but modest living from that. My living was made from television. Yeah. Writing specials for Hallmark and CBS and other places. And so how did the idea for Rex first happen about Henry VIII then? Oh, well, it didn't come from me. Oh. Uh, Richard, uh, uh, Richard Rogers and Sheldon decided they wanted to do a show about Henry VIII. Uh, it would not have been my choice for them yeah. or for me, but they wanted me because I had just won uh, the Emmy for Adam's Chronicles and I had been nominated for a Tony for the Rothschilds. And uh, in other words, I was I was a professional, yeah. and I had a reputation of being easy to work with, and uh, so I uh, created a script about Henry VIII, and I submitted it to uh, Mr. Rogers, who I later came to call Dick, and uh, Sheldon, and they loved it, and uh, Richard Adler, the composer, was uh, one of the producers. And it was rough going. It was not, we had a, I made a choice for an actor. To, I, I had seen Nicole Williamson in London doing several plays when I had lived in London. And I thought he was a brilliant actor and I thought he'd make a marvelous Henry VIII. Little did I know that he was a, well, as far as I was concerned, he was an out of control, uh, egomaniacal, uh, man who liked the sauce too much, oh. and working with him was very difficult, extremely difficult, hard to change material, hard to develop it. He was very good in it, uh, but he had a coldness to him, yeah. which I, I hadn't considered. And to do Henry, you have to have a bravura performer, like a Charles Lawton who did it in the movies. Uh, you, you needed someone with a, with a lot of of balmy, a lot of, uh, of, of, of passion and energy. Yeah. And that was not what he did. So um, it was the one instance where I had suggested him as a performer. Everyone had agreed that was a brilliant idea. And I rue the day that I did so. Poor man is dead now, but he was a pain in every part of every part of one's body uh, and during the time that I worked with him. And That's the only time that I've had an actor, really, uh, who disappointed me. Yeah. I've, had, I've had actors like Bruce Dern, who left the show early, and to my disappointment, forcing us to close it. Oh. Uh, but he was brilliant in the show, and I have no, no, nothing but praise for his work. Other set of circumstances made him leave, but um, I'm generally speaking, I've been very happy with the actors. In fact, the Rothschild actors, all these years later, uh, once a year we meet. Oh. Uh, sometimes at Sardi's, sometimes in another restaurant, and sometimes with some uh, of the women who were part of the chorus at that time. But we get as many people together. I don't organize it. Uh, Timothy Jerome, who was one of the sons in the Rothschilds, seems to do that. 
and he suggests where we should meet, and we meet, and we dine, and we discuss the last year that we've had. But that does not happen that often. My experience of theater and of life in um, film and, and, and other areas is that there's a very close bond that takes place during the rehearsal and during the performances and during the run. But that after a show closes, people just drift on and uh, they go to their own spaces and do their own lives. In fact, what's, what's interesting is that I have a, I'm on the Facebook and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of followers and yeah. among them are some of the people who are in the, in Rex and the Rothschilds and particularly Rex, the one who played the prince, the prince who is now a man in, I guess, his 40s or 50s and he played the little boy. Oh. He's in contact with me. And uh, I often follow Robbie Benson, who is in the Rothschilds, yeah. on his page. Um, no, the internet has been a very, you know, it's, it, 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 it's had some rotten things <laughs> to do, and it's, not, it's responsible for some very bad things. Yeah. But it also gives you an opportunity to stay in touch with people, and uh, which is nice, because it, as you age, uh, because for, for progressively more difficult to keep up with friends. Yeah. Uh, and so going back to, to Rex, um, what was your collaboration like with Hal Prince and Edwin Sharon, who were working on the direction? I thought Edwin Sharon, who was a great director for the, the uh, Great White Hope, uh, had no understanding of how to direct a musical and was, in fact, a detriment to the show. I'll say it. And Hal Prince came in for two days and he changed some of the costuming to make uh, Catherine of Aragon look a little more grim so that would justify more of Henry's passion for uh, Anne Boleyn. But uh, he, I, other than having some very nice conversations over drinks with him, he did not. He didn't want to get in the way. So I, I, I would say that it, it, neither of them. I mean, Ed Sheeran directed it. Hal Prince added a few touches, uh, and but neither of them made the made the difference. Because yeah. neither of them spotted what Sheldon and I saw later as what was needed in the show and i was telling you it was about creating this relationship between henry and his fool and um some dates played that way in uh, utah opera has played it uh more or less in that in that fashion um but it has not had and it was played in in canada uh but i would like it to have another life but it could only do that i think in community and uh, repertory theater. Yes. And so I would love to move on to talking about your next Broadway project, which was Strangers. And did you have that sort of in mind for Broadway as you were writing it or did that? Yes, I did. I did. I, 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 I was I had conversations with Bruce Dern throughout the year. We talked about uh, Sinclair Lewis, who I was writing about, and 
uh, this was unfortunate, but Lynn Redgrave was supposed to do oh. the part of Dorothy Thompson. And at the very last minute, she dropped out because she got a television sitcom, which her husband had uh, thought was a wise move. It didn't last, and she would have been brilliant in the play. But uh, I like the play, but uh, Lois Nettleton, who took over, I did not feel that she was up to the part. Yeah. Um, I can say that now she's no longer alive. And she's a good actress, but she was miscast in it. And you've written a number of plays that are based on real people or about the lives of real people. And what would make you sort of pick a subject for that? How would you? What would make me take the subject? Uh, a commission, more often than not. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of what uh, what plays are based on real people. Well, I once wrote something about Alexander Graham Bell. I don't know that it ever appeared. Um, I've, 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 uh, mostly, uh, the best thing that I did in that area was John Adams. I think that my creation of Adams gave it humor and life and uh, a true relationship with his wife, Abigail. And uh, I thought it was the best attempt to bring that character to life, and that includes 1776 and the other John Adams show that was done on HBO. I think the one that we did for um, uh, public television really was superb. And how do you approach sort of getting inside somebody's head like that when you're writing about them? Well, I think I'm. I think everybody is in my head, and I'm in everybody's head. It's not. It's not so hard. Uh, I understood. Uh, Adams was a man who was quick to anger when he saw an injustice. It's my, one of my qualities. If I see something that I think is wrong, I will shout it out and. Uh, uh, not always tactfully, um, and uh, he loved his wife dearly. I love my wife dearly. Yeah. Uh, he has uh, he had children who he cared about. I have children I care about. Um, I think uh, it is easy to quite it, it take off the wigs and the costumes and uh, that stuff like that, and we find a common a commonality that we have as human beings with others. I mean, if I write about someone uh, who isn't, was a real human being, like Sinclair Lewis, it's because I can find in Sinclair Lewis his um, difficult childhood, which he had, it was his relationship with his father, and I had a difficult relationship with mine. Uh, and if I didn't have that, I'd find another thing that, that tied us together, because I believe in the commonality of humanity. That's why, uh, you know, the last thing I wrote in musicals, which I want to get on, and I think we will be, it's a four-actor version of the life of Josephine Baker. And I'm not a black person, and I'm not a woman, but I understand what it is to be, uh, and I'm not being arrogant about it, but within me is a sense of what it feels like to be persecuted. 
yeah. and what it feels like to have ambition and to have that ambition frustrated and uh, to be uh, taking chances in life, which she did. Uh, so I'm not saying that I am the incarnation of Josephine Baker. That would be nonsense. But I can. I believe in the universality of people. You know, Shakespeare never went to Italy, and we have Romeo and Juliet. Um, I'm, I'm just. Of course, Shakespeare was. He's a bad example because who's Shakespeare? Not I. Um, but the fact is that there is, I think, too much made uh, about uh, having to experience something in order to write about it. The fact is we have imagination, we have observation, we have uh, empathy, uh, that all of those qualities help us to write about, how could we ever write about a, a man, ever write about a woman, yeah. if, or a woman write about a man, uh, if we had to be that person. When you do see a musical on stage, what would make you think that something had a good book? When you were seeing it, if I if, if I had written it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only halfway serious about that. Uh, you know, although you know, I didn't write Fiddler on the Roof or 1776. Uh, my work has, uh, you know, is it, pretty damn good. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm not modest about it. I did good work in my time, uh, but that time is over except for the Josephine, which when it played in various locales, got brilliant reviews. And in Chicago, uh, the Sun-Times thought it was the best show of the year, but it never came to New York. There's a, there's a lot of good fortune or producers with money or producers who lack money that have to do with the uh, arrival of a show yeah. into New York. But uh, no, I, I've seen, I've seen good books. Jeepers, there was something, uh, it was just something called Band Visits. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm not for sure if I'm right on the, net, the title, oh, but oh. It, that, that had a good, very good book. It was a very strange book, but it had a very good book. Uh, I appreciated it. Um, I'm trying to think of, of what, oh, uh, a lot of Oscar Hammerstein's books are wonderful, yeah. you know. Carousel, but those books are based upon uh, other books. But uh, you know about uh, shows like Green Grow the Lilacs, Become Oklahoma. They, they, they. A lot of their work was inspired by other work. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't deny the fact that the books were very good. Although we've changed so much. Imagine uh, Oklahoma opening today, there would be protests. Yeah. Why, why so? Because the left out of the show are the Native Americans, and the Native Americans who lost their land to the settlers. You can make a case for that. Uh, why do you glorify uh, that situation? Well, they did, and it came at a time uh, when we were entering a war, and we needed that kind of uh, you know, boost that kind of love of the land uh, that uh, the show provided. Yeah. 
And so you talked about how one of the things you like to do is call out any kind of injustice when you see it, and that brings me to your recent sort of work as a political commentator on the Huff Post and on many different places. And so, how did you sort of get inspired to begin doing that? Or no, I think it's. A, I may be a, a, a writer. I'm a citizen as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, as a citizen, I believe that I have an obligation to speak my mind. Nobody has to listen to it, but uh, I want to express my feelings. And uh, they are, I would say, uh, liberal, progressive, um, and uh, very strongly anti-racist. Um, you know, my work on the Josephine Baker Project, working with a lot of black actors and uh, and musicians and the like uh, brought me into a world that I loved and uh, I get infuriated when I see what's going on today the attempt to suppress the vote so that African Americans are not represented fairly you know and and I'm Jewish also and we come out of a tradition of, uh, of, of, of to a great degree of speaking out and uh, engaging with public issues. Yeah, yeah. And so to bring us up to the present day, what has the quarantine been like for you as an artist and a writer? Well, I, it was uh, a, a difficult time because I had had a surgery. won't go into that, but, uh, and I lost some of my balance, which is back again. Thank goodness. Uh, but I, 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 was stay, I was staying at home mainly. Um, my wife had not been well, and uh, so there were few opportunities to go out. But I mean, I walk around the block, and uh, I we have a little Target store down the street, and I'll go there and uh, mostly order food and uh, read, read a lot of novels. Uh, I read Henry James and Trump and uh, other beloved books, and I reread them sometimes. And I'm a big fancier of a woman named Dawn Powell, who was a, a not so well-known writer of, of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And uh, she wrote beautiful, wonderful novels. And uh, I have an immense library, uh, which, means that I feel sorry for my sons when they inherit it, because nobody can live like this. Um, you know, I have, I have books on the floor, um, and uh, but I have access to everything I want to read and reread, right, right here. What I, what I miss, all right, to be honest with you, I miss the theater. I miss the, the everyday work of working as a writer in the theater, of changing a line, of evaluating a performance, of seeing things that were just words on a page become uh, spoken words. You know, I was looking over, before your call, I was looking over Budapest, and there's a scene in it in which the actress, uh, it's never been performed, but I could hear the voice in my head where she talks about the Nazis coming into Austria and depending upon uh, 
uh, the world of Mozart. And she says, and Mozart slept. And uh, it's, a great, it's a great scene. It's a great, it's a great speech. Uh, not as I'm saying it here, garbled, but as it is written. And uh, I miss the fact that I can't see. I'm not seeing that done in a theater. The theater is about, to some degree, something else. And when I said the Disneyfication, I wasn't joking. Yeah. It's it's a it's about pleasing tourists, putting a lot of glam into uh, productions. Uh, there are still some straight plays that are done that are worth seeing, but uh, the balance, the ratio uh, of straight play to a Disney or Disney-like musical is distorted as far as I'm concerned. I don't say that the theater is dead. To a great degree, Disney is keeping the theater alive. But he's keeping the buildings alive. But uh, I don't know. I'm not, I don't think I'm being altogether fair. Maybe, you know, but uh, who, who has to be fair all the time? I've reached, I've reached an age where I can be unfair. And so I'd love to ask you just one last question, which is what advice would you give to somebody just starting out in the theater? In theater? Yeah. I, I would say to uh, go to Chicago, go to some small, not small town, you know, go to Denver, go to Atlanta, go to a place that has a, a regional theater and that has, uh, you know, uh, it, it, Chicago has storefront theaters. Uh, the idea is to get the work on. Yeah. And if you are going to submit a new play or a new musical to a New York producer, your chances are very slim. But the opportunities out there in the hinterland beyond New York are, I think, far greater. And I'm not saying that your work will be picked up and, uh, and, and will go to New York. That didn't happen with the Josephine with all the great reviews. But uh, I had the opportunity to see it done in a small theater with brilliant actors. Yeah. And, uh, and that is one of the joys. The idea is to get it seen, get the work out there. And uh, don't worry about Broadway. Broadway will happen by itself if it is to happen. But give yourself the chance to work in the theater, to have the joy of working in the theater. Because it is a very joyful experience most of the time. Yeah. At least it has been for me. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been wonderful and very interesting for me. Um, I well, it was a delightful conversation. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by the amazing Howard McGillan. Howard was and is one of Broadway's best leading men, having led the casts of such shows as Anything Goes, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Secret Garden, She Loves Me, and Kiss of the Spider Woman on Broadway. He is also Broadway's longest-running Phantom at 2,544 performances. He was most recently seen in Gigi and made his debut in the original Sunday in the Park with George. He also starred in Mac and Mabel on the West End and in Peter Pan hand on tour alongside Kathy Rigby. I Remember Mama, High Spirits, and Where's Charlie were among the shows he has done at Encores and Musicals in Mufti, and he also starred in the early workshops of Bounce, Rebecca, and It Should Have Been You. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.